You're invited to turn in your pew Bible to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning at the 11th verse, going through the 24th. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Webster defines unworthiness as lack of merit or lack of worth or undeserving. Jesus is very careful to describe this younger son as one who was without worth, one who was indeed unworthy. Look at the things he said about this younger son. First of all, the younger son demanded his share of the inheritance, and that prematurely. We can imagine how many times he uh, dreamed about his father's demise, wished his father would die, and when his father didn't cooperate, he decided to go on and demand his share of the inheritance prematurely. One can only imagine how much of a strain that put on the cash flow of the family to somehow pull together his share of the inheritance and to give it to him. He sets off with that money in his pocket, goes to a far country, and engages in what translation, one translation calls uh, riotous living or dissolute living. His elder brother was sure that it had a lot to do with loose and wild women. He spends everything he has, and finally he hits rock bottom. Now, what is rock bottom for the son of a pious Jew? Rock bottom is when you have to go to work for a Gentile 
and your job description is slop the pigs. Now that's rock bottom. That's where we see him. When he finally comes to himself and decides that his father's hired hands at least have bread, they have it better than he does, <coughs> so he determines to get up out of the pigsty and go home and to say to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's made his speech, but he is totally surprised to find that while he was yet far off, no one knows quite how far, the father, who had obviously kept a vigil, runs to meet him with a warm embrace, begins to express his love for him, even as the son follows through on his little speech of unworthiness. I have in my office a, a framed print depicting the return of the prodigal. And in that picture, we see the young man as he looked. We don't, we don't see him at, with all of the manifestations of the far country on his soul. But you can tell he's really been in the pigsty in this picture. And the father is holding him close. And as the father is holding him, the son is trying to pull his arm down like, I'm not worthy of such an expression of love. There isn't much strength in the hand that resists the father's embrace. And have you ever stopped to think about the other side of unworthiness? If there had been much strength in the hand that resisted his father's embrace, there would have been no joy and celebration in the father's house. You see, there is an unworthiness that draws us to God. When we realize there is a lack of merit, there is a lack of deserving, but there is also an unhealthy unworthiness, which when confronted with the overwhelming love and grace and forgiveness of God, we somehow feel ourselves unfit to receive it. And that kind of unworthiness can keep us out of the Father's house. We think in terms of a positive unworthiness, and that's good. I want to think for just a little bit this morning about an unhealthy unworthiness that can keep us from this heavenly living to which we have been called. You see, grace for those, for some who have been conditioned wrongly, can sound and be quite unbelievable. We can be like that 10-year-old blonde girl who came from a large and very poor family, who was hospitalized. Her father, a day laborer, could not be there with her. Her mother, with many smaller children, uh, was at home taking care of them. So when my friend, a church visitor, went to see her, she found her quite alone. She had just been served her, her morning meal, her breakfast, and the visitor noticed that she had eaten every crumb of her breakfast. But there was a glass of milk untouched on her tray. The visitor said, honey, what's wrong? Don't you like milk? And the little girl said, oh, yes, ma'am, I love milk. She says, well, then why haven't you drunk your milk? She said, because I'm waiting for someone 
to tell me how far down to drink. Many times we feel that way about grace. We've been conditioned to think we can only deserve so much grace. And when someone announces, drink it all, as my friend said, all of it's for you. It's almost inconceivable. It's almost unreal to us. We have a hard time believing it. I believe Bernard of Clairvaux, that old reformer's observations are pertinent at this point. He talked to us about the stages of spiritual development. You remember he said the the first stage of spiritual development is the love of self for self's sake. That's when we are aware of our needs, but frankly, nobody else's. Our needs simply crowd out any other concern. That's love of self for self's sake. And then you remember the second stage is when we, we, we love God for self's sake. We love God, but we love Him because of what He can do for us. We love Him because we think of God as a kind of cosmic bellhop. We love God as long as God jumps through the hoops for us, as long as He does what we say. And if He doesn't perform correctly, then we get very upset and sometimes bitter and cynical. Like that person who, whose wife developed a brain tumor, and he prayed that God would heal her, but she died. And he announced to me, well, I'm through with God. I'll have nothing more to do with Him. You see, he had something he wanted God to do. And when God didn't do it, he was through with God. That's loving God for self's sake. That's the second stage of spiritual development. Now the third stage, and higher still, is the love of God for God's sake. When we simply uh, must praise him, must stand in awe, not necessarily for what he's done for us or is going to do for us, But we just love God because He's God. We love Him for who He is. Like my friend who was in his study early one morning, and his little uh, three-year-old came in and still in her night clothes and began to play peek-a-poo from behind the curtains. And after a time, my friend said, uh, Charlotte, what are you doing? Uh, What do you want me to do? What do you want your daddy to do? And she said, Daddy, I don't want you to do anything. I just want to be with you. And he still remembers that as a very precious moment in in their lives. And and, and that is precious when we start to love God just because He's God. The the happiest hour of our week is when we stand in, in His presence. We just love God for God's sake. But then you would think, well, that's the highest stage there is. But then that wise old reformer added still another stage. He says the fourth stage is when we love ourselves for God's sake. And that's a challenge, isn't it? At that point, uh, many of us struggle. Because who is the person that we have the most difficulty affirming? Who is the person we have the most difficulty loving? For many, that person is oneself. I I think it was not an accident that God revealed himself to me in those days prior to surgery for malignancy when so many of you were praying for me and we were getting letters and cards. 
And in the middle of all that, I felt God powerfully near and inside that still small voice saying to me, just let me love you. Just let me love you. When, when I embrace you and welcome you home, don't pull my arm away. Don't think yourself unworthy of my love. How do we get to, how do we come to view ourselves so negatively anyway? Why would we resist that, that grace and, and that love? How could we get so conditioned as to do that? I, I think there are many reasons. I just mentioned one or two of them, but, but I, I think it, it can come early on. I mean, it's a tough time growing up. I, I think about those just entering their teen years and their, their hormones are coming in and they don't know who they are, where they are, what's going on. It's a terrible time. It's hard to get from 12 to 20. I remember how tough it was in my life. When I was 11 years old, I had already had my growth spurt, except it wasn't up, it was out. I, I weighed as much at 11 as I weighed at 20. And, and I, I had not yet begun to grow up. I had just grown out. I didn't feel very good about myself. More than that, I had some friends who called me Buck. They called me Buck because I couldn't close my mouth. My, my top teeth protruded outside my mouth. And I didn't know how to say orthodontist, let alone spell one. And I, I, I remember how I wrestled with that. And I... My father took me to a dentist who accommodated me by pulling one of my upper teeth and giving me some room. And he said, now, if you want those teeth back in like they're supposed to be, you'll push them in. And he showed me how to fix my finger and push them in. And I know the orthodontists don't want to hear this, but I, I pushed on those teeth all day at school. The last thing I did at night was push on those teeth. I pushed until they were sore and I could feel them moving. And one day I went in to see the dentist and he said, don't push them anymore, you've already pushed them in. And I was struggling with something bigger than my teeth. I was struggling with the view I had of myself. Somebody had shared a legend with me. I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, but when I was a little boy, somebody had, had talked about a legend in Scotland and they said in those fair-skinned families, there's always one in practically every generation who's born with a dark complexion and, and he's destined to be the leader of the clan. And I decided early on that, that I didn't have a lot of things, but I was born with a tan. I was, I was the dark one in our family and I thought all those fair-skinned brothers and sisters of mine, they don't know it, but one day I'm going to grow up and be the leader of the clan. And you know something, they still don't know it, but I... <clears throat> I don't know who ever gave me that story, but boy, I tell you, I could, I could sit out there and just dream about being leader of the clan. You see, if somewhere along the way we don't get something positive to hold on about, to about ourselves, we're in a lot of trouble. Because the people, the people whom God has placed in our lives to bless us, sometimes choose not to bless us with the things that are most important. And if that's happened to us, then we got a real struggle. A young man came to my office once who desperately wanted to go to college. He had an awakening experience, was now ready to pay the price, but he had a terrible record in high school. I, I did everything I knew. I thought his conversion was real. I thought he'd make good on it. I finally found a junior college that would take him on probation. 
And I, I went around with him to his family to announce the good news that he was going to be able to go to college. And when I got there and saw their reaction, I understood why he had had a struggle. I remember the first thing his father said. He said, if you want him to go to college, you can pay for it. He said he doesn't amount to anything. He's not worth anything. And he'll never amount to anything. He just better hope that one day he can get in the army. Maybe at least there he'll get three square meals a day. And I left the house that day realizing that it would take the mighty power of an awesome God to set that young boy free of the kind of image that he had grown up with. No wonder he had a negative view of himself. No, longer he was, no wonder he was totally lacking in confidence. I could see him coming up the road and having that father come out to meet him. And I could see him pulling those arms down saying, I'm not fit. I am not worthy to be loved like that. There are all kinds of things that can create that sense of unworthiness. And it's amazing how strong it is. Lloyd Ogilvie, chaplain of the Senate, struggled with being gracious to himself, although he had already discovered a gracious God. Many of us struggle with that. Lord Ogilvy was praying one night and he felt the powerful presence of God very near. And he heard God say this, Will you love Lloyd like I do? Will you love Lloyd as much as I do? Will you forgive Lloyd? I have. And that was his challenge. And that's our challenge is to somehow let the Spirit of Christ within us overcome that unworthiness that keeps us from embracing fully the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, after this, this prodigal, who was an amazing young man, some good work had done in his life because in spite of all he had done and all he had been, when he, when he was confronted by that grace, he accepted it, thank God. He went into the house and suddenly a great celebration broke out. And where do we know where we stand? How do we know where we stand? The Bible says they ate and drank and began to make merry. And many of us can eat and drink. We don't have any problem with that. But making merry is like getting the old jalopy started with a weak battery on a zero degree morning. We just have a hard time cranking up the merry part. And I believe that the merry part, the joy, comes with the more complete acceptance of the embracing, loving arms of a God who surprises us. And didn't he surprise that prodigal? I mean, what is the image we carry in our minds? A God who surprises us with his love? I think about that father who went to the Grand Central Station with his son. His son was about to go off to college. He was going up to New England. In those days, they didn't see them until the term was over. And all the way to the station, his father had struggled with, what can I say to my son? And finally, just as he was about to get on the, on the train, he, he blurted out these words, Son, remember who you are. Remember who you are. And by that he meant, he didn't just remind him of, of, that he was the son in the, of, of, of a certain man and woman. He reminded him of a higher heredity, namely his sonship to Almighty God. That's what makes the difference. 
Every wise teacher, every wise parent knows that the, the strongest defenses of the soul are those defenses that come with a realization of an inner grandeur, of an original grandeur that comes all the way from God. We know who we are. We know what we have to do. We cannot run away. We cannot hide. We cannot give up because we know who we are. We know whose we are. I'm telling you, when we know that, we've done something remarkable for the human soul. It was that realization that kept Joseph down in Potiphar's house in Egypt when he was a slave. It kept him. Potiphar's wife tried to encourage him to come and lie with her. He steadfastly refused that temptation. He had everything to gain. He had nothing to lose. He was a slave. What did he say? He said, I cannot, surely I cannot do this thing and sin against my God. He was aware of that higher heredity. Something whispered in his soul and gave him the strength he needed in his life. Was it a whisper like Jesus was always whispering? He was always telling people who they were. He was reminding them of how precious they were to God. How did he say it to some people who thought they were zeros, nobodies? He said, let me tell you something. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? A single penny. And yet your heavenly Father knows when one of them lands on the ground, when one of them lights to take a rest on a branch, your Father knows it. And you are of much more value than many sparrows. Indeed, He has numbered the hairs on your heads. You are precious to Him. When we hear that, I can understand why one of the most important discoveries in our lives is how God really feels about us. How God really feels about us. Jesus described a God who loved us, who loved His returning children so much, He would humiliate Himself to go out and welcome them. That's what He did. When He picked up His skirts in that culture and ran, showing his calves, his ankles. He was humiliating himself and all because he had to go and welcome that returning son. And he said, kill the fatted calf. My goodness, they didn't have meat but once a year. And that was lamb at Passover. Killing the fatted calf was a once in a lifetime experience. Maybe for a wedding. But now a sinner comes home and the father says, kill the fatted calf. Do you know what God really thinks about you? Have you begun to understand that God gave us an original grandeur when he created us in his image? And until we are complete in him, we'll always be restless. We'll never have the peace of God because he put his stamp upon us when He created us. You know, people have always seen that differently. Some of the contemporaries of Wesley said, sure, we were created in the image of God. But when people sin and sin and sin like that prodigal did, they sin away their image. They call that total depravity. But the Methodist, on the other hand, following John Wesley, didn't call that total depravity. He spoke about being deprived by our sin. 
He said you can deface the image of God in your life through your sin. You can mar and disfigure the image of God in your life. But he said you can never completely destroy the image of God in your life. That image needs to be redeemed. You need to be adopted as the sons and daughters of God. But you can never totally erase the image of God in your life. So every person for Mr. Wesley had infinite worth and had the ability to respond to the love of God because they were created in the image of God. And it is that somehow unconscious, unspoken realization that we received His divine stamp upon our lives and our creation that keeps us reaching out to Him and keeps us yearning for Him. How did the psalmist say it? Who are we? What is man that you should notice him? I'll tell you who we are, the psalmist said. We are those who are created just a little bit lower than the angels, have been crowned with glory and honor. And when our God reaches out to us with love and forgiveness, let, do not let unworthiness cause us to reject it. Now, on November 22nd, Lord willing, our youngest child will give birth to what we think is going to be a little girl. And we have a ritual in our family when grandchildren come. When you have as many as we do, you have to have a ritual. I know, I know the scenario. I already understand. Jean's going to go over early. She'll be there several days before the baby is born. I will come over in a cloud of dust as soon as I can get there after the baby is born. And then Jean will always make this presentation. In the presence of the grandchildren and others, we, we don't call each other Bill and Jean. We call each other Ah Daddy and Nana. Those are, the, those are the names that our grandchildren know. So I, I, I know the routine by now. I can, I can already see the script. I don't know what this baby will be like. I don't know if it will be a girl or if the doctor will be surprised. And it'll be a, we don't know any of those things. But I know as soon as I arrive, Nana, whose eyes are perpetually wet and shining when she's holding a grandchild, Nana's going to stand up when I come in and she's going to pass that baby to me and she's going to say, Ah, oh, Daddy, we got us a keeper. We got us a keeper. I don't know what kind of baby it'd have to be for her to say, I don't believe we'll keep this one. <laughs> I mean, tall, short, fat, skinny, boy, girl, whoever, it's a keeper. Now, do you know that about you deep in your soul? Have you ever heard the Lord Jesus Christ say about you, God, we got us a keeper. When we know how God feels about us and he gives us the grace to embrace his love, then there's joy, absolute joy in the Father's house. Let us pray. Eternal God, we cannot begin to understand the depth of your love for us, but how grateful we are 
And how grateful, O oh God, that we, while unworthy, know that we are worthy. We do have merit because you created us in your own image and you said it's very, very, very good. And all of our sin and all of our shortcomings can never make you dislike us or reject us. Give us grace then to accept your love and complete our salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now let us sing our closing hymn, Thou My Everlasting Portion. What a wonderful hymn for this sermon. And as we sing, if you would like to commit your life, accept this wonderful grace I've been talking about, then you want to make it public, come forward during the singing of the hymn. If you want to come and speak to me privately, I'll be here waiting for you after the benediction. Will you come as we stand and sing?